You're listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit centurybaptist.org or download the Century Baptist Church app. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 12 this morning as you're turning there. Just reflect back on one of the most common popular things when you're a school-age child is get to bring something to school that you normally couldn't bring so that you could show your class, right? Show and tell. I was a master of show and tell. I'm just kidding. I probably was terrible at it. I had this faint memory of me being really excited about my brand new rock tumbler, which just proves how much of a nerd I was. It, it was either that or my telescope, so I mean, I was not very interesting. But anyway, so I can imagine just how that went. You take this, th- you take this can- canister, you put some rocks in, you turn it on, and for like days, and you open it up, and you get rocks that are just a little bit smoother. Isn't that great? Huh? I, I doubt if I was very good at show and tell. It was probably pretty boring, but it was pretty fun. The, uh, I've learned a little bit of a different show and tell as some of the people in my family have gotten into writing. When you're writing like novels and, and stories, there's showing and there's telling. And they say you can't just tell things, facts about he walked in the room, he was really tall. That's boring. You've got to show them. So you describe it in a way that's interesting. And you've got to have a balance in writing. It can't be too much telling or be boring. It can't be too much showing or be very confusing. It's showing and telling. For example, <clears throat> If I was to write a story about someone discovering a dragon, I'd probably write something like, and he walked around the corner and saw a dragon. You know, yikes, whatever, boring. If you have a master who writes it, it might sound something like this. Through it peeps the hobbit's little head. Before him lies the great bottommost cellar or dungeon hall of the ancient dwarves right at the mountain's root. It's almost dark so that, that its vastness can only be dimly guessed. But rising from the near side of the rocky floor, there is a great glow, the glow of smog. There he lay, a vast red golden dragon, fast asleep. A thrumming came from his jaws and nostrils and wisps of smoke. But his fires were low in slumber. That's a master, not me. That's a master. The Bible does a good deal of both showing and telling about Jesus in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I heard a pastor once in an interview say that when he started at his church, he he committed himself to preaching through all of the Gospels, which took a really long time. He went Matthew, he went Mark, he went Luke, he went John for the first, I mean, I I think it was 10 years. And he said this, I figured if I showed them Jesus here, they'll see Jesus everywhere. So he was showing his church Jesus so they would see him wherever they looked. So in a sense, this morning, like we do almost every morning, I'm bringing Jesus to show and tell for you. And I hope it's better than my rock tumbler. Where are we in the context here? Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 15. In verse 14, we just heard that the Pharisees were getting really, really mad at Jesus. And it's the first time mentioned that his life is in danger. They sought to destroy him. And this is the passage directly following this, following that. Uh, we know Jesus was on the right track, and he knew, he knew he was doing the right thing because he was making the right people mad. The Jews wanted Jesus to come and make the Romans mad by revolting and freeing them from Roman rule. Jesus came and actually made the Jews mad instead. They wanted him to do mighty works against the Romans. Jesus did mighty works for 
the people, which is the opposite of what they expected. So in this passage today, what Matthew does is he shows us and he tells us about Jesus so we can see him and know him and uh, learn more about him and how to follow him. So let's look at this passage today. I'm going to read it, so would you please stand? Matthew 12, starting in verse 15. And I'm going to read this passage, then we'll walk through it and talk about what it means this morning. Verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, meaning aware of that they were going to try to destroy him, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Amen. You may be seated. So let's just walk through this passage. What is Matthew telling us about Jesus here? First of all, It says, when he became aware of the, the conspiracy to try to kill him, he withdrew. Now, this was a tactical withdrawal. Jesus was not freaked out. He was not scared. He was not regrouping his disciples. Okay, okay they're mad at us. What are we going to do now? This was all part of the plan. <clears throat> this is how Jesus functioned. He was gradually building up this opposition until the end of the ministry. But he couldn't do it too fast until the mission was, the ministry was complete. And so when he pressed in, they responded, he withdrew. So it wouldn't grow too fast. It was all part of the plan. He did this all the time in Matthew. Uh, He did this when John the Baptist was arrested. He withdrew to be by himself. When he healed the paralytic, the Pharisees were there, how dare you? And he uh, he, he didn't fight with them at the moment. He healed them and he withdrew and prayed. It was a constant back and forth of addressing and confronting those who opposed him, and withdrawing to build that opposition until what he says in the end in Matthew 26, the time is at hand. And when the time was at hand for him to be betrayed, that's when they rose up and crucified him and murdered him on the cross. The pattern of withdrawing was part of his plan. Then it says he healed them all. They followed him and many people healed him. Jesus chose to display his deity through his tremendous miracles, his tremendous healing power, his authority over demons, and his authority over death itself. And for the sake of stating the obvious, no one healed like Jesus. Before him, after him, this was a very unique concentration of healing power. It was the display of God's power through Jesus. It had a very specific purpose for Jesus. It validated his ministry and vindicated him as the Messiah. It showed that he wasn't just a wise teacher. He wasn't just giving them clever new ideas. He was actually speaking the word of God. The miracles served the message. Now, I don't mean that when I say this, I don't mean that they were just for show. They were actually very meaningful. For the people that Jesus healed, tremendously meaningful. Their lives were changed. So it was impactful, it was meaningful, but it wasn't, he wasn't just showing up to Pharisees and saying, oh yeah, well, you guys think you have followers? Watch this. He wasn't showing off to people, he was showing them the way of salvation. 
and the miracles that he did served that message. So he says he healed them all. But then it says he ordered them, which is a strong word in the Greek. It's a very strong, he ordered them, told them, do not go and tell anyone. Don't make, my, don't make me known. Now, this comes up frequently in the Gospels. When we, when we do what we do here at Century, when we walk through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, we deal with, every time something comes up, we deal with it. This comes up over and over again. Why did Jesus keep telling people not to tell people about him? Wasn't that the point? Didn't he want people to know more about him? Didn't he want that message to be what was, what was spread? And yet, several times in all the Gospels, he says, when he heals someone or a group of people, like here, he healed everybody, whatever, they, whatever was wrong. Then he says, don't tell people. Well, there's a lot of reasons why. Let's just review this. It does come up frequently. Let's review why he did this. There's a few reasons. First of all, there were some people who just were there for the show. There was this guy who was laying on a mat. He couldn't walk. This other guy said, get up and walk, and he did. Come, come see it. It's great. It's a, it's a great show. Jesus didn't want that attention. It wasn't for entertainment. He also knew that people wanted to make him the leader of the mob that was going to overthrow the government. You know, he didn't want that attention. But it wasn't just that. The Pharisees would sometimes interrogate, even harass people that Jesus healed. In John 12, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we know that the Pharisees wanted to kill Lazarus because they were so upset that people were believing in Jesus because of that miracle. They wanted to kill Lazarus to discredit Jesus. So the people that Jesus were ministering to were actually in danger also of being harassed and even assaulted by the Pharisees. But there's another reason, I think, in addition to all these, but I think important here. Jesus didn't want people to focus on the signs and wonders. He didn't want them to share about his miracles. He wanted them to share about his message. That was the point. And we know that because I just mentioned several times when he would do something miraculous, he would say, don't go tell anyone. But never once when he preached a sermon or taught his disciples did he say, okay, now don't go tell anybody. Because that was the point. That was what he wanted to spread. So the, the amazing outpouring of signs and wonders that Jesus did was not meant to be the normal ministry. That was not meant to continue. The message of salvation was. Now, just because when I say that there's a concentration of miracles around Jesus, there's, it's undeniable. Before him, I mean, there was very little. You read the Old Testament, you think we read about some amazing things, but spread out over the whole Old Testament, very sparse. Very intentional and purposeful how God intervened. And after then, same, same way. It was not the normal way to have this outpouring of signs and wonders and healings and miracles. God still works today. He still does amazing things today. He still does extraordinary things, but that's why they're called extraordinary. They're not his ordinary means of functioning because he wants us to focus on the greatest miracle, which is new life. People who were dead in sin now having life in Jesus. That's the message. That's the miracle that he wants people to focus on now. So it was not God's design for this ongoing, tremendous outpouring of amazing signs and wonders to always follow the church and people. That was specifically for Jesus and his ministry and authenticating him as the Messiah. John the Apostle wrote about this at the end of his gospel in John chapter 20. 
John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs, the ones we included, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The signs and wonders we focus on are the ones Jesus did to show Jesus was the Christ and he is the one who is the Savior. That's our focus. Now I know, whenever I bring this up, I know that in people's minds, and I've heard this, will say, but uh, if God would just do something great now, if he'd just do something amazing, then tons of people would believe. They couldn't deny it. They would believe because it would be so amazing. Really? Because... That didn't work for Jesus. In all of the amazing miracles that he did, there are still people, most people, all, most of the people, because he had crowds, thousands of people. And there was only 120 in the room after he died that were meeting together. So what happened to those thousands who followed him and saw all the miracles? Huh? Yeah, it was a good show for a while, but eh, it changed the channel. And Jesus told us that that wasn't the point. He knows that the, that, that, that great sign of the uh, expression of miracles isn't going to be what convinces people. When he taught about the rich man and Lazarus, he, in a parable, he creates this image in Luke 16. And the rich man and Lazarus, if you don't remember, in Luke 16, you can read it. It's great. There's a rich guy who dies and he goes to Sheol and a, and a poor guy who dies and he goes to Abraham's side in heaven. And Jesus kind of lays this out. They're talking back and forth. The rich guy is suffering. Can you give me some water? Nope. You had everything you wanted in life, but you ignored me, so now you're suffering for it. And then he goes, okay, well, at least send Lazarus, that poor guy, back from the dead to my family and to tell them so they don't have to suffer like me. And Abraham, in this illustration Jesus used, says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe them, they're not going to believe even if someone comes back from the dead. The point Jesus makes is people have the testimony of God's word, some miraculous show, some fireworks isn't going to be what pushes them over into faith. It's the word, it's the truth, it's the gospel that saves. So this pattern Again, this goes back to why did Jesus tell people not to tell everyone about the miracles? Because that wasn't the point. It never was the point. It's not supposed to be the point now. The point is the message. And if our faith needs strengthening today, don't look for something extraordinary or amazing. Go to the amazing truth of Jesus and his testimony and his promises. That's what will strengthen our faith this morning. So Matthew goes on, verse 17. This is, just spoiler alert, this is Matthew telling. Remember I said show and tell? This is just telling. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. No frills. He's just coming out and saying it. And he's saying it on purpose because people were missing it. And he had to make this point very clear. So he tells us, this, but then he shows us. We have this passage and he draws the passage from Isaiah into his book to show what he just told. So let's just go over these one by one and see what Matthew is showing us about Jesus. So he starts in verse 18. He's quoting, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. So <clears throat> I often try to think about how did the Jews miss this so badly? 
Because it's so obvious to us now that Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't see it. And as I was looking into this, there was one little thing that I didn't quite realize that I learned. When, when the Jews would interpret the Old Testament about the servant, about the, the suffering servant, and this shows up in uh, Isaiah chapter 41, the Jews interpret that as being about Israel. So they're always reading those passages thinking about Israel being the servant. Even though in Isaiah it's a very personal prophecy, they still see it as being Israel. So they weren't looking for Jesus. They were looking for something fulfilled through Israel, and they missed it. There was, they, they had their lens tightened so close that they couldn't see the Messiah right in front of them. And so when it says in Matthew, my, my servant whom I am chosen, this is equating Israel as the servant with Jesus as the suffering servant. And what Matthew does is he's connecting the two. He already kind of did this back in Matthew 4, talking about the temptation of Jesus. Because there's parallels between Jesus' temptation and, and Israel. They both were sent to the desert before they were gone, they were gone on God's mission. They both uh, were hungry. They both had to trust God to feed them on more than bread alone. They both were tempted. I mean, there was these, so Matthew in, four, in chapter 4 was showing us that connection between Jesus and Israel. And here he's telling us, this is about Jesus, and he's saying the first thing is, behold my servant. Now, I, we know that, this, that the disciples understood this because Peter, in Acts 3 and Acts 4, in his, in his first sermons, four times refers to Jesus as the servant. He was talking to Jews. So at one point, Peter got it, because he's a Jew himself. He's like, oh, the servant is Jesus. Yeah, got it. I got to include that. And, and in four different times in his first two sermons, he talks about Jesus as the servant. So again, Matthew's showing us the servant is Jesus. He is the Messiah from Isaiah. So then it says, My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. And that should just ring from Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3. Jesus comes out of the water and the voice says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In Matthew 17, at the transfiguration, Jesus is on the mountain. He's transfigured. And the voice says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Matthew's just putting it all together. He's connecting the dots. He's the one Isaiah was talking about. I will put my spirit upon him. Jesus himself in Luke 4 said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to do all the things that I've come to do. Peter in Acts 10, when he's talking to Cornelius and his family, says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. It was clear he was operating in the power of the Spirit as he obeyed his Father's will to fulfill his mission, which was, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, Jesus had also already kind of alluded to this in chapter 8, in Matthew eight eleven. Jesus said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So that was Jesus' way of saying, you know those people that are way out there Gentiles, 
I'm going to proclaim the justice to them too. And justice means more than just judgment and punishment. When he says proclaim justice, he doesn't mean I'm going to come and, and smack down on everyone else. Proclaiming the gospel is proclaiming justice. It's like you're, you, whenever you speak the truth of the gospel, you create a line. And God's justice is manifest in that line, meaning God is just for all who believe and trust in him in Jesus, that he will save. And he's also just in all who reject him and do not follow him will be punished. That is just. If you're in the, on a beach, just sand everywhere, and you want to play a game of volleyball, you put up a net, and then what do you do? You take a stick and you make a line. All of a sudden, from that sand, there is a mark. And that mark means something. If the ball comes on this side, it's good. If it goes on that side, it's not. That's a line. Now, the gospel is a universal, eternal line that states the justice of God. He is mighty and just to save those who believe. He is completely just to punish those who do not. So when, when Isaiah writes and Matthew quotes that I'll proclaim justice, this is all part of the gospel being proclaimed to the Jews and to the Gentiles alike. And then this beautiful passage in verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Just look at the example that he showed already. He will not quarrel. When he healed the paralytic, remember they put him in the, down from the roof and those Pharisees were there. How dare you? And they were judging him. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't quarrel with them. He just asks them a question. Which is easier for me to forgive sins or tell him to walk? And he tells him to walk. And it made him mad, but he didn't argue. He just showed them his power, and the truth of what he was preaching. When he walked around, he didn't cry aloud and draw attention to himself. When he preached his greatest sermon ever, it says he sat down and his disciples were around him and people just came. There was no fanfare. He wasn't looking for fame. He just taught and people were drawn to him. It says you will not hear his voice in the streets. He wasn't out there shouting and promoting himself. His disciples didn't carry him around on a cart. In fact, when he was going on his way to Jairus' house to heal Jairus' daughter, he, a woman came, touched his garment, and he stopped and he ministered to her because she was healed. And he went and, and raised this girl from the dead. There was no, he wasn't drawing attention. He wasn't going for political power or influence or popularity. He wasn't trying to be louder than his opposition. He didn't come to win a shouting match. He came to win people, souls, which is what he did, especially broken people. So in verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. So people use reeds all the time. They are just those sticks, round sticks. You could use them for all sorts of things in a house. So if one was broken or bruised, you just toss it out and you go get another one. They weren't very valuable. They were useful but not valuable. A smoldering wick is usually something that maybe produces smoke but not light or heat, not very useful, either wasn't tended to, didn't have enough oil, often was discarded, extinguished. This is representing people who are oppressed or abused or rejected, considered useless or worthless, and yet Jesus shows great compassion and meekness toward them. So, are there examples of bruised reeds and smoldering wicks? Well, just in Matthew alone, he heals the leper. 
He heals the centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He saved his disciples from the storm. The two men with demons, the paralytic, Jairus' daughter, the woman suffering from bleeding, the blind man, the mute man, the man with the withered hand, and that's, we're not even halfway through the book yet. All of these broken reeds, smoldering wicks, he doesn't discard them or extinguish them. He loves them, has compassion on them, and cares for them. Until, it says, he brings justice to victory. His justice will be shown in his love and compassion for these people. He didn't come to stir up a revolution by shedding his enemy's blood. He came up to bring and secure salvation by shedding his own blood. And his kingdom is going to be full of broken reeds and smoldering wicks that have been mended and rekindled. And they'll ride with him, he says, in victory with the Savior. This is the nature of his kingdom. And that's not all, because then he says, and verse 21, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. I don't think we realize how staggeringly glorious this truth is. I mean, it was controversial when Jesus said it, when Jesus taught it, but it is immeasurably glorious for us because unless there's a Jewish person in here that I do not know about, none of us would be included in the promises of the gospel if it were not for what Jesus did. We'd be out because salvation came through the Jews, came through the nation of Israel. But he's saying here, in his name, because of the Messiah, the Gentiles now have hope, have access in John 13, in John 3, whoever believes in him have eternal life. John 11, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. For everyone, not just the Jews. There's a great passage about this in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11, that talks about this. Just read it and worship and thank the Lord. In the middle of this, verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you, you, me, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is a glorious truth that Matthew takes time to point and say, this is possible because of Jesus. So what can we take away from this passage today? I was thinking about how they treated Jesus, how people treated Jesus. They desperately wanted him to be someone that he wasn't. And we do that now also. But the truth is, Jesus is Jesus. No matter what we say or do about it, he is who he is. Sometimes now, people, I mean, just think about it. He's not very funny. He doesn't have very much fun. Friends, your friends might not like him or think he's cool. He seems kind of judgy. He doesn't share my politics. Yeah, he's, Jesus is just isn't doing it for me. So people either just ignore him, discard him altogether, or try to rebrand Jesus. They try to make excuses for Jesus to make him sound a little less edgy. Take the edge off so people, more people would like him. People do that a lot. They try to 
I mean, they'll take away the miracles. If you take away the miracles of Jesus, he's a lot easier to digest. Because if he did those miracles and he said what he said, if, the, if he did what the Bible says that he did, then that means he's God and he can't be ignored. But if we take away some of that stuff, then we can maybe make a Jesus that fits our own narrative, fits my call. If I can get Jesus on my side of the argument, that would be a good thing. So they reshape Jesus into something that he's not. People do this a lot. I hope that you're aware of this. People who say things about what Jesus would or wouldn't do or does or doesn't, wouldn't would say, don't necessarily speak for Jesus. If you see something online or on TV, please don't just assume that that is true because people do it all the time. I have some examples. It's heartbreaking. But please, our discernment has to be very sharp. For instance, people who claim to follow Jesus and believe in Jesus. This is a person who calls himself a pro-choice Christian. And this is what they wrote. Making abortion illegal is going to disproportionately affect young women, women in poverty, women of color, women in rural areas, women who don't have a support system that some people are privileged to have. These are the kind of people that Jesus was always advocating for in his life and ministry. I, first and foremost, am always going to side with a living, breathing human woman and what's best for her and her family situation. Both in Jesus' day and in our day, women's bodies are too often tossed aside. I think Jesus would not approve of that. I think Jesus would have a couple things to say about that. And yet claiming to be a Christian, speaking things completely contrary to Scripture of who Jesus actually is, trying to gain some authority by saying, I think this is what Jesus would say. Maybe some of you saw this very uh, TV show and one of the people on the TV shows, I don't know what they believe about Jesus, but what they said was, if Jesus were here, he would be the grand marshal at a gay pride parade. And I think, I don't know how you know that or what makes you think that. Would Jesus interact with people in the LGBTQ community? Absolutely. Would he talk with them? Would he call them out of their sin to repentance and trusting in him? Absolutely. I mean, he did that all the time. That's why people were so mad at him because he went with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. But he never endorsed what they were doing or encouraged it. He never celebrated it. He called them out of their sin so to say that Jesus would be a part of celebrating something so opposite of Scripture is not just irresponsible, it's just a lie. I hope that you see that. Very recently, a very well-known Christian attributed to, said, I just follow what Jesus said. Love God and love each other. That's why I feel like I am justified in hosting a same-sex wedding in my home for one of my relatives. So the Jesus that said a man shall leave his father and mother and be bound to his wife would endorse and be present and celebrate something that is completely opposite of what the Bible teaches about marriage? I just don't think so. How can you blatantly take something so opposite of Jesus and attribute it to him, trying to get him on your side? We need to believe what is true about Jesus. And what we know is true about him is from 
what's written about in his word. The Bible is God's final and ultimate authority about the revelation of Jesus. It's the most, and it's the most historically scrutinized and verified and undeniably verified book ever written. It's his word. When, when Matthew says, in his name the Gentiles will hope, in his name actually has to mean something. It can't just mean whatever you want it to mean. If it doesn't mean what the Bible says it means, there's nothing there. There's no promise. There's no hope. And what it means is, his name is everything about him, his nature, his character, his promises. And we only know that because of the Bible. We're not allowed to change Jesus into something he is not. Jesus is Jesus, period. And we must know him and follow him as he actually is. We can't change who he is and we can't change how he acted. We do need to pay attention to how he acted. So how do we respond when people misrepresent Jesus? Because I read some of those quotes and I did some research. It was not fun. But my stomach just turns. How do you respond? One important distinction is Jesus never tells us that we need to defend his honor. Okay. How dare you say that about Jesus? That's not our job. Jesus will be vindicated, and he tells us that over and over again in Scripture. He will defend his own honor, his own name. Uh, that's, that's where you see honor religions that pop up. The followers feel like they have an obligation to defend the leader. So if anyone, like in Islam, when someone is, uh, insults the prophet, that's why you have the followers so violently oppose those people. They feel like they're obligated to defend the honor of the prophet. Jesus never calls us to do that. That's completely different than Christianity. He just calls us to faithfully communicate his message. And how do we do that? With conviction and compassion. No one was more committed to and focused on the mission, God's mission, than Jesus. He perfectly fulfilled every word and he spoke the very words of God. He never wavered, he never sinned, he never compromised his conviction. But also, no one was more compassionate and loving than Jesus. He always spoke the truth and he always proclaimed the justice of God to everyone. Jesus presented the truth with unwavering conviction and unending compassion. You can't have one without the other. If you do, if we do, people will feel, might feel condemned or convicted by the truth, but will they actually know that you love them and care about them? Or if you just love them, people might not have any idea why or that you actually believe something. This is convicting to us, and it should be a moment of just examination. Think of it as, I don't know, a meter. Is your conviction meter as full as your compassion meter? Do people know what you believe, whether they ask or not, in person, online? Do you, are you very clear to tell people what you believe, what's right and wrong? But they are left wondering if you actually care about them or not? Or do people know you love them because you'll do anything for them, but they don't even know you're a Christian? You can't have one or the other. Jesus functioned in complete conviction and ultimate compassion. In a church, sometimes I think we equate godliness with grumpiness, like come to church but get off my lawn type of a thing. Are we known, as, are, are we a place that's known for following God's word and generously loving people? 
is our conviction about doctrine as strong as our compassion toward people? Are we the happiest, friendliest, godliest church we possibly can be? We can do it without compromising our conviction or corrupting our compassion. Jesus did it. That's what he calls us to do. Now I know people say, but Jesus had righteous anger when he turned over the tables in the temple. I know. He did that like once or twice. That was not the normal. So shouting is not the normal. Turning over tables is not how he wants us to treat people on a regular basis. God's word does not need our anger, our outrage, or our volume to make it more effective. He needs us to know it, to believe it, to live by it, and to communicate it faithfully. His word will do the work. He will bring justice to victory. So we talk about discipleship all the time. Discipleship is knowing Jesus and following Jesus. We should see him like we see him today. We should treasure him above all else so that we look more like him in how we treat people so we can show him and tell him to others. How do we do that? We tell them the truth with our words and we show them Jesus with our lives. That's the point. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you so much for your mercy. Thank you for calling us to the highest standard. And you say, be holy as I am holy. What you mean is, be, have the conviction that I have and have the compassion that I have. See people the way that I see them. Love people the way that I love them. And you do not let us off the hook. And I'm grateful for it because I know the promise is that whatever you command us to do, you also empower us to do with your spirit. We can have full conviction about what we believe and what we know from your word is true and full compassion and loving people. Those two need to work together. We need to be a church full of people who know what is true and love people like you do. Let that be what is said about Century Baptist. What's said about you because of Century Baptist? that we be a people who honor you and glorify you by how we treat people. And Lord, help us as we reach people, as we communicate with people about sin, about the need for a Savior, that we would do it kindly and graciously but truthfully, and they would always call people to repentance and trusting in you. And never fall into the trap of allowing or endorsing or encouraging people to continue in their sin. We know that's wicked and you condemn it all through Scripture. We need to stand firm with courage and boldness on the, based on the power of your Spirit and help us every day. And help us have discernment when people start saying things about you that are simply not true. To know it and to help those around us, if we have opportunity, see the truth with grace and conviction, and compassion. So that we're not defending your honor, we're proclaiming the gospel. Let that be what we're known for. Jesus, we love you. This morning, once again, we want to see you, and savor you, and treasure you above all else, and help others to do the same. Turn our eyes to you once again, Jesus, in your name. Amen.